let's have a look. Have you ever seen someone do that thing where they try and choose their own nickname? It's, it's probably like a primary school thing. Uh, grade three, introducing yourself. My name's Josh Newington. You can call me Buffalo. It doesn't really work. In fact, um, Australians are so sort of objectionable when it comes to someone sort of trying to elevate themselves that Australians even just really struggle with someone who's insistent that you call them a particular thing. So if your name is, you know, Joseph and you're like, it's Joseph and people call you Joe, if you're like, Joseph, of course it makes sense to be called by your name. But there's a good chance that when you walk out of the room, there'll be a few people going, oh, Joseph. <laughs> is that true? I mean, that's not, not necessarily a good or a bad thing. That's just what I found. But yeah, the whole choosing your own nickname thing um, is, is kind of awkward. I've seen it not happen a few times in my life. Somehow, I mean, it's hard to know how things went down for Jesus, but he seemed to try it. Um, does anyone familiar with the nickname that Jesus sort of chose for himself? Yeah, well, there you go. Oh, there's people here that know their Bibles. That's good. It's a good start, even if we don't pray at men's breakfast. Um, this uh, image you may be familiar with if you're older than me, and uh, it comes from uh, a film called King of Kings, which was sort of like a biopic of Jesus that was released in 1961, had cause to watch it recently for a course that I was teaching. Um, and it just brings home how hard it is to portray Jesus. This scene's from the, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's kind of wandering through the Judean hillside with this, you know exultant look on his face delivering this crazy sermon um, which is like straight out of the bible and yet there's something really difficult and awkward about it and jesus isn't very relatable in that moment has anyone actually seen the film it's really hard to do jesus justice Um, and we kind of swung away from films that use the literal text of the bible when they portray him just because it just takes him somewhere it doesn't sound like reality Blessed are the peacemakers for, you know, like, um, I don't know how Jesus said it, but it probably wasn't like that white guy there. Uh, Anyway, Jesus did, it seems, get away with referring to himself as the Son of Man. And some of you will know that uh, the prophet Ezekiel, who we're talking an exile sort of time period prophet, he used that term. Um, and he used it sort of of himself, or the book of Ezekiel uses it of himself, basically just means human. So you could just read human, and Jesus saying, I am human, which is a wonder in itself as the Son of God. But um, in Daniel, we also find the term, and it's loaded up with some some interesting stuff that we're going to see today when Daniel uses it still kind of takes that human meaning through, but it gets a bit more complicated. And actually, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus was into Daniel. Um, So that's a good reason for us to be into it. One of the reasons we covered all too quickly last week, and that's that the exile is a very significant period of Israel's history 
very significant theme for the people of God. The exile on this timeline is just that little black square in the middle. And we might be forgiven to think it's just 70 years in there, the Babylonian exile. But one of the things that we did last week is that we saw actually in the story of Scripture, it's a lot more than that. And I just wanted to remind you briefly of some of what we covered. So, strictly speaking, when we, when we sort of talk about the exile, people are generally talking about this 70 years from 597 before Jesus. Um, so, you can see in that image there, Jerusalem's just been smashed and the Jews are being led away by their Babylonian captors. Um, and it is uh, a period that looms really large in the psyche of God's people, the psyche of the Jews particularly. So here's um, an image of sitting by the rivers of Babylon with our harps hung up on the trees, the line of Judah in captivity in the corner there, weeping. How can we sing the songs of God when we're so far from the land that he promised us? We're so far from Jerusalem. We're so far from Zion. It is something that I don't think we can underestimate, particularly because I think we've downplayed it a little bit in our cultural context. That is so significant to the psyche of those who wrote Scripture and have um, identified with Scripture through the ages. So much so, and I don't think I picked up that much on this growing up in the church, that you know, we know the exiles eventually came back from Babylon, but we looked a bit last week... Uh, at the fact that when they got back, they realised, oh, maybe you can't really come back from exile so easily. Uh, these other empires are like dominating the Holy Land now, um, and the temple's never going to be what it was. Maybe, even though we've returned from exile, we're still somehow in exile. This idea had so much resonance that if we fast forward to the time of John the Baptist and the time of Jesus, who we see in the image there, John the Baptist is going as a prophet, one of those crazy prophetic figures, sort of outside of the promised land, at least symbolically, into the wilderness, to the banks of Jordan, where the people cross into the promised land. Uh, If you think about the exodus from Egypt through Jordan into the promised land. We attach to him doing that these quotations from this poem by the prophet Isaiah that comes out of the exile period that sees a time when the exiles would come through the wilderness home, right? So make straight paths, prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to bring his people home. John's out there saying, you feel like you need to go home? Sure, you're living in the promised land, but you've got Roman occupiers. It feels a little bit like Babylon, does it? It feels like a foreign religion making fun of your religion. It feels like the military might of an empire leaning on you, sucking the very life out of you. Do you want to go home to Zion? Do you want to go home to Jerusalem? Do you want to inherit the promised land in the fullest of senses? That message had so much resonance there at the turn of the common era that it says all of Judea followed him out into the wilderness. 
and they went right through those waters they went through those waters the waters of baptism Jesus himself subjects himself to that movement right he says I, I want to be a part of that movement Jesus Christ says I want to come home I, I see you exiles I see the way that you feel like the world is not as it should be I, feel, I see the way that you long to come home I see the way that you long for peace you long for the world to be the way that God intended it to be I see that I'm there with you And this is so much through the New Testament. It's really hard to find a good picture of the Whore of Babylon. Um, so when you find a really bad one, you just got to jump on that seven-headed beast. Um, that is the Whore of Babylon, right? So we might familiar, be familiar with that language from Revelation, but actually it comes up all through the epistles, as though Babylon is still a thing. Babylon's centuries past. And yet the writers of the New Testament, this exile thing is playing for them, right? It's playing for them. And so they can talk about Babylon as though Babylon is now. And it brings us uh, to this realisation that actually Scripture speaks in a very real sense to the fact that we're all in exile. Like, exile is a thing. It's not just a thing for 70 years in Israel's history. It's a big deal. Hopefully, I mean, you know, I'm a Bible nerd and and doing prep for this sermon series has made me see this again. Whoa, this is a big deal. This is a bigger deal than I'd realised. And um, then we also kind of acknowledge, and this is one of those tricky things where let's stick a pin in this. And if you want to have a conversation about this, let's have a conversation about it because it's hard. We can actually look back before the Babylonian exile and we see this exile stuff from the very first pages of the Bible. So I've got an etching there of Adam and Eve being exiled from Zion, as it were, evicted from from Eden, the way that God had intended things to be for them. And we looked at these key words like the Hebrew word for driven out, which you find again and again through the Old Testament from the beginning all the way up to the exile. This orientation towards the east. So Adam and Eva pushed out to the east. Cain's pushed out to the east. Human beings wander to the east and establish this city. We call it Babel, um, but there's this strong link etymologically, Babel and Babylon. And there's a couple of reasons why this might be the case. One, um, there is uh, this sense in which maybe just in God's providence, the way that history unfurled, he kind of was in his sovereignty over Babylon being established all the way back there in prehistory um, and then it's sort of emerging um, when the Babylonian Empire arose uh, around 600 years before Christ. The other 
and, and lots of biblical scholars kind of lean this way, is that actually um, lots of the work that was involved in putting the Old Testament together happened at the time of exile. And there's some sense to that. If you think about the best and brightest carried off, um, still having access to their scriptures and thinking, and the stories, right? We don't, I mean, who knows really how some of these how some of these very, very old parts of Scripture came to us. Partly going, we've got this history of glory with David and Solomon. We've got um, this story that's come to us about the patriarchs and the promises to Abraham. We've got this understanding of, of God creating human beings, Moses and the Exodus and all that kind of stuff. The Bible back then wasn't like already chosen, you know, in the sense that we've got it. So they had this, all of these writings and stories, and they're trying to make sense of, well, how did we get here? Because this doesn't seem to be a part of the story. God's promised all this good stuff, and, and here we are in a foreign land. And so they kind of, in looking at how Scripture came together, were mindful of explaining their current circumstance. How did we get here? And part of that, it seems, involved realising, oh, well, we're in exile, but the Babylonians are kind of in exile. We've got God. We're holding on to these promises. We've got his revelation to us. There's good stuff happening in this exile community, and yet we see trouble around us. We, we see other people longing for home in the way that we long for home. That second option can make us a little bit uncomfortable because it, it starts to look into, um, for one, it's very kind of critical, like it's very sort of a modern way of thinking, well, how did this um, amazing witness of Scripture come to us? I don't think it necessarily has to be, but I think it's probably, just personally, a bit of a combination of those two, God working in providence through history and then something happening in the exilic community looking back. Um, but like I said, feel free to come and have a chat to me. I don't have all the answers there, but it is interesting to think about how significant exile is even before the Babylonian exile has happened. What's really significant about Daniel is not only is it uh, writing that comes out of this period of the Jews being in exile in Babylon. But actually, and it makes sense in light of a community of faithful people who were exiles going, how did we end up here? Actually, it seems to answer some of the questions that might be prompted by that situation. Where the people of God say, this doesn't look like the promise of God. We're not in the Holy Land. The temple's gone. All of the things that God promised that would make us unique and uh, that would represent his blessing to us are, are scattered, are gone. They seem like a, a memory. How does this work? How do we be the people of God in the face of these circumstances? Daniel, I want to suggest, and we're going to do this for a few weeks now, actually aims to answer the questions that would come out of that circumstance. God, where are you? 
how do I get back home? How do I get back home, not just to the promised land in a geographical sense, but back home in that deep existential sort of sense that the faithful exiles would have looked around and looked at their Babylonian neighbour and gone, you know, they might have the political power relative to me, but I know that they've got these deep longings, this deep brokenness. I know they're as far away from where they should be as I am, if not further. So let's have a read of Daniel chapter 1. It's not a long chapter, and we're going to draw a few things out of this. If you've got your Bibles, awesome. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so this is 597, uh, so we would date it, Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. That's weird to start with. The Lord delivered the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And then, you know, the articles from the temple being taken gets worse. These Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3, we're at now, if you're still looking it up. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. It's going to be tough for Jews. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from his table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. These ones will be more familiar to you for at least three out of four. Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the chief official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, But, the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. We know Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal guy um, from last week. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. It's awfully polite, isn't it? Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. 
At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. Interestingly, it's not uh, like Daniel was insistent on uh, a diet that was in line uh, with with um, Jewish religion. It wasn't like he broke down the diet. He said, I can eat meat, but I can't eat that. It's like he just kind of simplified it and said, just give us vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. At the end of the time set by the king to bring, uh, to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered into the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel actually was there longer than Nebuchadnezzar, if you know your history, because Nebuchadnezzar had a son who took over before Darius. So, cool story, right? You can see why um, it makes it into children's church a lot of the time, and you should probably have some sort of knowledge of it. The observation has been made that under such circumstances, being taken into exile, being foreigners in a strange land where the culture is different, the values are different, there's kind of two impulses that come quite naturally to the human heart and mind. The first of these is to resist what's happening, to revolt or to withdraw. Now, they're kind of two ways of resisting. And uh, I think we're probably familiar with these impulses even from our own lives when we feel like the culture around us is kind of pushing us into exile. We might really fight back in a, in a kind of, uh, as, like I said last week, throwing every available resource that we have at it. Or we can kind of withdraw and create these little enclaves. The other is to just give in to the pressure um, to adopt Babylonian culture and religion, as it were. And both were going on in Daniel's day. You might be familiar with Jeremiah, who we talked about. He was kidnapped, actually, by those who were resisting the Babylonian empire from Judah. The suggestion has been made by those who've studied this book, including a guy... um, I'm just going to drop some resources as we go because we're going to be here for a while if you want to jump on board a guy called Daniel Smith Christopher who has looked a lot at the implications for Christians of the theology of the of, of the exile he says there is a third way it's not necessarily just about resisting or just about giving in but there is this way that is shown to us through scripture but particularly through Daniel of doing a third thing. And it involves loyalty, actually, to the empire. And we've seen that a little bit already in Jeremiah, right, where he says, actually, work to make Babylon a better place. Pray for the king of Babylon. But also, subversion. And those two things are obviously in a little bit of tension, but the third way always is, right? So he talks about this radical third way and others like him that is a combination of loyalty and subversion. Do we see this in Daniel? Well, I reckon we do. 
it says that they learned the language and literature, the culture of Babylon. Well, sure, that was kind of circumstantial to them, right? But they could have kind of resisted to the point of bloodshed, whether it was their own or others. In verse 4 and 5, it talks about that. They took on Babylonian names. It's interesting, isn't it, that we know Daniel's three friends by their Babylonian names. There's this cool thing going on with the book of Daniel. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. The first bit's written in Hebrew, and then do you know what language it changes to? It changes to Aramaic for most of it, which was actually the language of the Babylonian Empire. So there's something going on there as well. And it says that they ate from the king's table in verse 4. Now, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say, hang on, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. You bang on. That's absolutely true. But what does he say? He goes about it in a pretty kind of nuanced way. So there's a section of the passage that you can see up there that says, please test your servants. Interesting that he's kind of polite in it. Just give us a chance to try something else. He still has this point of conviction. But it's not like he goes to war about it. He's strategic about it. He tries to see if he can get it to work even for the empire, right? And that's actually the miracle that God does in this situation. That uh, the the his captors kind of see there's something good in what he's doing here that's good for us as well. So he did eat from the king's table in a sense. And if you're familiar with Jewish customs as well, you'll know that even if he was eating kosher food that was prepared by Babylonian chefs, that's still a big problem for him. To be eating with Gentiles off the same table as Gentiles is still a big problem. So he's kind of picking his battles a little bit there. He's cooperative on a point of conflict. Instead of just throwing the toys out of the cot or going Rambo, he kind of takes a third way. And so it says in verses 19 to 21 that they actually entered the king's service. And in fact, they took with them then, didn't they? Part of their culture part of the truth that God had revealed to their people. That's a little bit hard to read, but I'll read it for you. So Daniel Smith Christopher, he talks about um, this third way. He says, The non-violent peace ethic of the Hebrew exiles is a practice of radical doubt towards the self-proclaimed power and religion of the empire. It is rooted in a conviction that God's covenant people are the primary vehicle of God's work in the world and the nation state or the empire is not the center of the universe. This is the ethic of the exiled Hebrew wisdom warrior, a nonviolent resistance that's based on the wise awareness that the empires of this age, despite their attempts to convince otherwise, are not of ultimate significance. Or, in the language of Daniel's vision, they are dust to be swept away by the wind while the mountain of God's stands forever. Hallelujah, yo. Good stuff, right? So, um, you can see 
that Daniel is strategic and subversive at the same time. He's doing this thing of balancing loyalty and subversiveness. And uh, I want to suggest this morning, I think Daniel's going to lead us to see that this is actually the call on our lives. If we're in exile, and we're in exile if we long for a better place, if we want to go home, if we want to see God's peace established, that we are to operate in this way, in the way, Smith Christopher says, of the wisdom warrior. And just paraphrasing a section from that quote, the wisdom warrior is one who's wise, who has wise awareness that the empires of this age, despite their attempts to convince otherwise, are not of ultimate significance. And that was kind of the point of that dream we talked about last week, right? That Daniel sees into the future and he says, yeah, you're amazing, Nebuchadnezzar. This empire is huge. You would think that it's never going to end, but it is. There's going to be another one and another one and another one and another one. And maybe you know when that cycle stops? I don't. But eventually it does in the dream with this rock that is cut out of a mountain that turns them all to dust and ash and is a symbol of God's kingdom that lasts forever. The wisdom warrior. The wisdom warrior and the way of the wisdom warrior is loyal and subversive. It's someone who knows God's story and knows that whatever history looks like is happening right now. God has it in hand and he has a plan for the end. Not to panic, to continue to be faithful, to continue to be loyal and subversive at the same time and to trust God even in the face of the most challenging circumstances, even in the face of circumstances that would seem to belie the goodness of his promises to us. I don't know if this warrior wisdom way sounds familiar to you. I don't know if you've seen it anywhere else in the Bible. Go with me here for a little while. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Matthew 22. So this um, is a story that may be familiar with you. It's got Jesus at the center of it. Then the Pharisees, it says, went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, Interestingly, these uh, two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, weren't necessarily the kinds of guys who would hang out with one another religiously, but they're drawn together here significantly in their opposition to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's some hollow flattery there, isn't it? From someone who actually wants to kill him. Uh, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Maybe they're saying he doesn't pay enough attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So the imperial tax, the tax of the empire, that was the tax that was put on subjects of the empire, right? Not Roman citizens. That was the tax that conquered people had to pay. That was the tax that Jews, for whom... The very presence of Rome in the Holy Land was kind of an anathema to their faith, right? It seemed to shout at them that the promises of God are not true for you, that you're not truly home. Is it right that we Jews, the true people of God, should pay this filthy empire? 
But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They bought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is on this and whose inscription? So Jesus, good Jew, going back to Genesis 1, right? He's grabbing that image language. The currency of a kingdom has the image of its king or ruler or emperor on it. What's of value in that empire has the ruler's image on it. Caesar's, they replied. So Jesus is saying, Caesar's got some stuff going on, right? He, there's obviously a fair bit wrapped up in this. He's got some power. He's got some pull. There's a whole economy built on this. But his audience are Jews. And that image word, what does that tell them? It tells them that Jesus is saying, there's a bigger economy here. And there's something more valuable than a silver denarius. What really matters here is not what we do with this coin. It's what we do with these people, with these exiles, created and beloved of God part of his great economy stick that in your pipe and smoke it is what Jesus basically says I don't know if they smoked pipes I haven't done that much research into it when they heard this it said um, they were amazed so Jesus says give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and God what's God's sure the money belongs to the empire but actually it all belongs to God right that sound a little bit wisdom warrior to you? I'm going to quickly give you one more example before we come to communion. Matthew 26. I mean, this is taking some work. This is good stuff, right? The Bible, we're into this. Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Now I've got a little picture. So Jesus has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, the religious council in Jerusalem. It says in verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men bring against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I tell all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on clouds on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting pretty much directly 
from Daniel 7 when he says that, when he says, But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel chapter 7 has another one of uh, these dreams from the book of Daniel in it, and it kind of mirrors the one that we looked at last week. Last week, it was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it was about these four empires. This story is about a dream that Daniel has of these four beasts that come out of the sea. And maybe um, you've heard it before. And um, again, you know, you might have a really great schema for sort of applying that to where the communists fit in there. I'm not there yet. Um, Just haven't worked it out, I'm saying. Uh, So come and chat to me if you can help me with that. But traditionally, it's kind of been uh, considered that it's talking about the four empires that included the Babylonian Empire and followed. And in this dream that Daniel has, these beasts which represent these empires come up out of the sea and they're disgusting, right? They're everything that's wrong with human society. And they kind of characterize these empires as evil entities that will crush innocent people under their wheels. And in this dream, the Son of Man, the human, rises up, puts the final beast to death, and takes its place at the throne room of God for all eternity, thereby establishing God's good reign for all time. The subtext of this, Jesus, before the council, we know that actually, you know, in a sense, he's kind of consigning himself to death at that point, right? It's understandable when you think about it, if he is identifying himself as the Son of Man, that the high priest, it says, rips his clothes. He says, this man has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? is worthy of death, the people in the council shouted. Jesus is kind of drawing parallel, or pointing pretty directly, that he is this human who somehow can have his presence in the throne room of God, this God-man who is worthy to sit there. But another implication of it is, is that he's pointing to the high priest and saying, if you're in my way here, you're a tool of Babylon. If not the king of Babylon yourself, the priest is understandably, perhaps, even if we don't agree with him, upset and eyed by that. Which leads me to this, and I might get the band to come up. We're going to have communion in a minute. Jesus, actually, you know, he's the archetypal wisdom warrior and if we're disciples of his he calls us into his way we see the peak of that journey right here when he says I'm about to be crushed here I'm about to be victimized by this empire in the grandest sense and at the same time I am the son of man ascending to the throne bringing in the eternal kingdom of God 
His promises of peace and joy and love. And he exemplifies exactly this thing that Smith Christopher points us to. Despite the best efforts of the empires of our age, they are not of ultimate significance. All of their military might, power, all of their wealth are helpless in the face of the God-man who will lay down his life and who calls his disciples to do likewise. And this means that if we're doing likewise, if we're following the way of the wisdom warrior, there's a good chance we're going to be getting it from both sides. There might be the ultra-religious resistors on one side. There could be the compromises and the empire on the other. But you know, the beauty and power of what Jesus did so he railed against those empires and ultimately defeated them. What he did was for the people of whom those empires consisted. Because he was tapping into and affirming the same truth that those Babylonian exiled Jews had centuries before when they looked around and they thought, we're a long way from home. We don't have a temple to worship at. We're misunderstood here. It's hard for us to get ahead here. But my Babylonian neighbours, they're a long way from home too. And something needs to happen to bring it all to an end. We become beasts when we try and rule with political power oftentimes, with economic power. There is only one man, son of man, one human who's been able to walk that line. He's been able to do it just so, not compromise. He's been truly wise. And I think the wonder of what we have access to here when we think about the Babylonian exiles is that we're not doing it without this man this God man who, who's justified to sit in the throne room of God but yet is so humble so motivated by love identifies so strongly with us as exiles that he lays it all down subjects his body to those terrible cogs that tear it apart on the cross he holds it together for us reframes the universe begins to bring in this new kingdom of peace and love and joy that will last for all eternity if we just follow in his way we share in that we're going to come to the table we're going to remember that amazing act of sacrifice. Why don't you stand up? I'm going to ask the ushers to come down. The way that we do it here is um, our ushers will sanitize their hands and they'll tear the bread up for you. They'll give you a piece. You can dip it 
in a cup. Do we have enough? Could you come down so I can see if we've got enough ushers? I might have to dob someone in. Perhaps any of the elders that are in the room could just come and supplement the numbers. We'll need six people. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six. Wonderful. Thank you. So we'll have a station at the back. We'll have one here. We'll have one there. Well, my fellow wisdom warriors in the making, with his help, we can balance the loyalty and subversion thing. If we continue to press into the story, we can know our place in it. We can definitely continue to trust that he's got it all in hand. As you come and eat this morning, Let's say in our hearts, Jesus, I want to follow in your way. I'm prepared to be a wisdom warrior. I identify with your sacrifice. Help. Help me for the sake of your exiles. Not just those who are present, but all throughout the world who wander who are lost, who wish to go home, who long to see peace and joy and love in the shape of your kingdom come. Amen. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, 